Greetings, everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. You are listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Broadcasting to you from the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast, the third coast of Texas. The darkest truths from the darkest web need to be told. And you must listen to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Live with us from Santa Barbara, California, is corpses and cover-ups. My goal is always a far-reaching presenter than uh, I've met. He uh, does his research thoroughly. His presentations are always thought-provoking, and uh, he presents us with the best evidence possible, even though we don't have evidence in hand. So it's always a pleasure to have Michael uh, with us here at the uh, uh, Western Connecticut UFO Conference, and he is live with us from Santa Barbara, California. Michael, thank you for joining us. Go ahead <laughs> with your presentation. I can't okay. Thank you, Julio, for giving me the opportunity to uh, join all of you today. And uh, as we mentioned, the title of this lecture is called Retrievals of the Third Kind, Cosmic Crashes, Corpses, and Cover-Ups. And what I'd like to do in this presentation is to do a very serious and thorough deep dive into the Leonard Stringfield crash retrieval cases. That is the goal of this presentation. And we'll we'll go ahead and move forward here. And uh, what I've got here on this slide is UFO crash retrievals, the ultimate holy grail of ufology. And I really think it is the ultimate holy grail because within UFO crash retrievals, we've got three elements. We've got the bodies, we've got the debris, and we've got the craft. Any one of those three elements would be very helpful in moving this field forward. That's what we need. We don't need any more CE1 cases where we see a light in the sky. What we need is the physical hardware. We need the actual physical evidence, and then we can move this field forward. And it's within the crash retrieval cases, that's where we're going to find this evidence. Okay, a couple of quick announcements here. Uh, The content of each case highlighted in this presentation has remained intact per the description of the original source. Number two, the identity of first-hand sources will be protected per Leonard Stringfield's original agreement with his military contacts. Number three, the visual aids used in this presentation are computer-generated forensic composite illustrations and sketches which originated from the specific details provided by Leonard's sources. Sources for the material covered in this presentation include the following. So this is where Leonard got this information. Uh, Here we go. Three-star U.S. Air Force generals, U.S. Air Force fighter pilots, astronauts, commercial pilots, air traffic controllers, neurosurgeons, pathologists, theoretical physicists, and mathematicians, U.S. Army officers, U.S. Navy officers, military police, high-level Pentagon officials, top military brass, scientists and engineers, 
board at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and other government facilities. So you can see this is the caliber of witnesses that Leonard had spoke to, and these were the sources. Okay, a couple of quick quotes here. Uh, since World War II, 50% of all documents created by the United States government have been classified top secret. Therefore, that means that we have essentially lost 50% of our nat national history. That's from Richard Dolan. Interesting quote. Number two, UFO crash retrievals can't be real because if they were, I would have read about them in the local newspaper. That's the general public. Uh, number three, don't believe anything until it's officially denied by James Clarkson. And the fourth one here, there are not now, nor ever have been, any extraterrestrial visitors or equipment on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, official U.S. Air Force press release, July 1980. And I put down here, oh yeah, we'll see about that. So it's going to be us against them, and we'll try to present the best available evidence to make our case here. Uh, so I want to introduce to you this gentleman here. Uh, this is Leonard Stringfield. He was the gentleman who actually coined the term UFO crash retrieval. And I want to go into a little bit of a, a biological thumbnail here about Leonard. Uh, he was born in 1920. He grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. By the time he graduated from high school in 1939, he had already memorized the entire dictionary. So. He's a good person to, to receive these reports. Uh, he joined the military as soon as he heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. After the war, he was employed by a chemical company in Ohio and retired after 30 years. Leonard wrote two books, Inside Saucer Post 3-0-1957 and Situation Red, The UFO Siege, 1977. And here's the interesting part here. His lecture on UFO crash retrievals at the 1978 MUFON Symposium in Dayton, Ohio, caused an international sensation. So why did it create a sensation? Well, two reasons. Number one, he wasn't able to verify all of the information that his sources presented. That was the first thing. The second thing is, he had to keep the names of his sources protected under wraps, and that was the agreement that he had with his sources, that he was allowed to maintain an important part of our national history by describing each case, but the names had to be kept anonymous. That's the agreement he wrote. Now, next one here, he passed away December 18, 1994. So it's really up to us to preserve Leonard's legacy and try to make these cases come alive here. So here is the Cincinnati Inquirer, July 19, 1993. Author continues quest for truth about UFOs. Quote, what I've collected has staggering implications for mankind. This would be the biggest thing since Christ, really. Well, it could be. If we can prove it, it could actually be. And everything that we'll be talking about today essentially comes down to this volume right here. Uh, UFO crash retrievals, the complete investigations, status reports one through seven. And that is something that you can get from Amazon. It's a very thick book. I mean, it's technical reading. It's serious reading. It's hardcore. It's source after source after UFO crash retrieval case. All of the descriptions, the bodies, the craft, the debris, where it was sent, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It's heavy-duty reading. But the problem is, number one, there's no illustrations. 
there's no pictures. There's no drawings. It's very little sketches in here. So it's lacking visual aids. And number two, the names of the witnesses are protected within this publication. So my job has been is to commission my art friends that I've been working on the past three years and try to make these cases which are embedded into this book, try to make them come alive through the use of visual illustrations. That's the goal here. Uh, and the other source is the original dictation notes that were stored at Lunkin Airport in Cincinnati, Ohio. There are 65 three-ring binders. So back in 2013, I was given access to this collection, and I want to take you inside now just to let you know that I actually was there. Here's going inside the, the headquarters, and we'll go inside and see the file cabinets. And then on this table here, I've laid out a few of these three-ring binders just to get you an idea of what it actually looks like. Okay, now, here's the big question. Would you go to Las Vegas if you knew the odds were 119 to 1 in your favor? Technically, you can't lose. So within Leonard Springfield's publication and the dictation notes of the 65 three-ring binders, there are approximately 119 UFO crash retrieval accounts. All we need is one to be accurate, one to be authentic. That's all we need. If we went to Vegas with those odds, 119 to 1 in our favor, you, you're going to win every time. You can't lose. All we need is one of these accounts to be true. And the case for non-existence of UFO crash retrievers completely falls apart. So, again, the odds are in our favor. Okay, want to mention my good friend Rudy Gardea. He's the great artist who made these cases come alive through these pencil sketches. And we'll begin here. This is UFO crash retrieval. This is 1942. And it came down at an undisclosed army base somewhere north of Georgia. Even Leonard didn't know where this took place. But it was somewhere at an army base north of Georgia. And this is 1942. This is long before Roswell in 1947. The source is UFO crash retrievals by Leonard Stringfield, page 319. And what this craft was about 15 feet across, 10 feet high. On the forward section of the craft, it had this wraparound window section. And in the report, it stated that there were three levels. So on the top, there was kind of this control room, which had buttons and switches and dials and levers. And then just below that, there was another room, which was on the inside of this wraparound window that you see here at the front. There were four bar stools in this second section. And then below that, there was a bottom bay with a trap door. And in the report, it, it discusses that four crew members were taken alive. They were five feet tall, 90 pounds, large black eyes, and they had milky white skin. And if you look over here to the left, you can see that when this craft came down, it hit the side roof of this army facility and tore a hole breach on the side of the craft. And what Rudy's done here is over to the left, we have one of these beams drawn, drawn not to scale. We've enlarged him so that you can see what he looks like. And then on the right-hand side, we've got this view looking inside the craft itself with this control panel section. And then looking down on an inset section of the floor, we've got these four bar stools. So again, this is 1942, long before Roswell. And we'll continue on here. This next one is Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio, 1946, and this involves a private who is involved in records management. The source for this is Space, the Final Frontier, page 59, 
by Clark McClellan. And there is a Leonard Stringfield tie-in here. Now, it's important to note that Wright-Patterson Air Force Base was known as Wright Field in 1946. It had not become Wright-Patterson until 1947. So let's go into this case here. And here is the reference for this, Space the Final Frontier, uh, Secrets NASA Doesn't Want You to Know. So within this book, there is a reference to this case. And they give you this drawing here, what this craft was, kind of a brushed aluminum exterior, 15 feet in diameter, 7 feet tall. It had these 15 inch long by 10 inch wide rectangular windows wrapped around the outer surface circumference of the craft itself. It arrived at Wright Field in 1946 by a railroad flat car from Arkansas. That's how it got there. There were no rivets, there were no seams, uh, there was no type of furniture or seats inside. There was a three-foot diameter control console that started from the bottom of the craft that went all the way up to the roof of the interior. And this private was involved in records management and he was told to deliver some papers inside building number 18 where he met a friend who was an MP and we'll continue on here. Let's, let's do a little bit more of an, an advanced drawing here. This is my AutoCAD drawing that I put together. And again, there were no rivets, no wells, no seams, no hatches, no control panels, no seats. So this thing was antiseptically sterile on the inside. If you look on the upper right-hand corner, I cut away the skin showing in the interior central column. Again, 15 feet across, 7 feet tall. Now, if you look over here, I've got this little red dot where the window is. And this is interesting because this is the attempted point of entry where they were using a diamond tip drill bit to try to bore a hole into this window, and there was no effect. And at this point, I've got three separate cases of the United States military at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, at other locations, where they are desperately trying to breach the hull of these craft. Maybe they're trying to reverse engineer the propulsion system or try to reverse engineer the actual skin so that they can integrate that into our top fighter aircraft. But bottom line is, they could get, not get inside. So here is my good friend Joseph Royce. Uh, we did a, a much more advanced uh, 3D version of it here. He's also showing you the central column in the center. And again, this red dot on this lower view at the window, this represents the attempted point of entry. So can you imagine seeing this at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in a hangar back in 1946? So this was my very first attempt to model up this craft. And then I'm gonna take you one step further. Here is Rudy's sketch. Now off to the right on the floor, there was a tarp that had not yet covered this craft. But then there was a toolbox in front with this electric drill, with this diamond tip drill bit, where they were trying to get into these crafts. So really, it's these witnesses against the United States government. And the witnesses are telling us that they're seeing these craft at military applications. No. So let's try to make this case come alive. Let's take it one step further. Can we get Joseph to do a full color rendering? And here is the final result right here. And you can see... Uh, we're, we're there, we're at the location. Now you can see what this craft actually looks like. And uh, it appears that these craft are actually there. Uh, who knows if they're there now, but at that time they were at that location. Okay, next case. White Sands Missile Range, July 4th, 1947. That should be interesting because that's like the same time frame as Roswell. 
sources, UFO crash retrievals, page 196. So on all of these cases, I want to give you the reference books. I want to give you the source material. I want to give you the page number so you can verify this on your own. You can authenticate this on your own. So this disc-shaped craft came down White Sands Missile Range, and this is the boundary here. It was at the north part of White Sands Missile Range where this large craft came down. We'll go ahead and move forward here. This is the drawing by Rudy. This was about 100 to 150 feet in diameter. It was very well illuminated. They had these mobile searchlights and floodlights surrounding this. And they had a couple of tents off to the side. And the interesting point on this particular case is that the entire operation, the entire UFO crash retrieval operation was being recorded on both still photography and motion picture film reel. So when the government gets up before Congress and the American people and they say, you know what, we don't have any evidence of, of these dish-shaped crafts or UFOs or craft or two. We don't have any evidence. The, the witnesses are telling us that not only do they have the evidence, but they've got the motion picture film reel, they've got the 8x10 glossy black and white, they've got the material hardware, they've got the physical evidence. So again, it's the military witnesses against the United States government. We'll move on to the next one here. UFO crash retrieval, 1947. This was seen by a scientist on an 18-wheeler tractor trailer low boy. It was seen at a warehouse in Berkeley, and this is page 197 from UFO crash retrieval. So you can imagine, he's in this warehouse location. The, the garage door opens up, and then this military 18-wheeler tractor trailer backs in, and he's looking at this craft. So let's take you to the scene here. Here it is. This craft was egg-shaped, about 30 feet across, 15 feet high. And in the report, it states that there was a hole breach on the side of this egg-shaped craft, showing you the interior component, which was composed of about a three-foot diameter sphere that was separated from the forward section of the craft by a composite panel. Now, wrapped around the outer circumference of this three-foot diameter sphere, was another composite panel that hugged the outer diameter of the sphere. Uh, and so that's very interesting. Now my question is, and somehow this craft suffered some type of an internal explosion because there was a whole bridge off to the side with shrapnel coming out here. So my question is, was this the entire craft or was this the internal propulsion system for a much larger vehicle? This thing's already 30 feet across. Is this the propulsion system for something larger? We're talking 100, 200 feet in diameter. It's possible, but it was seen at Berkeley back in 1947. We'll move on here. Okay, next one. This is a craft that came down in a carrot patch in, uh, south of Salinas, California. This is July, August, 1947. Two witnesses were two 19-year-old boys uh, who were in a nearby field. Again, this is the source for this is Lawrence Springfield dictation notes. So I want to take you to the scene and give you an idea of what this actually looked like. Now, here is the original sketch from the report. It was nine feet in diameter, about four feet tall, wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft. There were these embedded porthole windows that were rectangular in shape. There were two double rows of this wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft. So let's go to the sketch now. And this is the map that shows you where this thing actually comes down. So we can pinpoint where this actually took place. And this is what was seen. 
Uh, by the now it crashed the night before, or it came down in a soft landing the night before in this carrot patch. So it was there the previous night. The next morning, when these two 19-year-old witnesses were working in a nearby field, they saw the craft. The foreman came, and by that time, the military arrived. They had kind of a six-by-troop transport. They had a jeep. These two 19-year-old witnesses were ordered away, but they were close enough to see the entire operation with the United States military bringing this craft onto the flatbed trailer and then moving this craft away. So again, this is south of Salinas, California. Next one, really like this one. This took place some date prior to 1951 in the Sierra Madre, California mountain range. And this is UFO crash retrievals, page 32. Now this has to do with a nine foot diameter dish-shaped craft that was covered, recovered by the United States government, the military. There were two bodies recovered and there was a construction worker who was working on the scene when this C-119 flying boxcar came in. The United States government actually went over to this construction worker and asked for assistance. He came over and helped the government load this nine-foot diameter dish-shaped craft into the back-end cargo bay of the C-119. Now, let's take you inside here. Here is the aft cargo bay of a C-119 flying boxcar. And we know that the exterior, the, the extreme exterior diameter of this dish-shaped craft cannot be any more than nine feet because the interior cargo bay is only nine feet, 10 inches. So with a nine foot diameter dish-shaped craft, we've had five inches of clearance on either side. That's how we can gauge the maximum diameter of what they recovered. So let's go to the sketch I want to show you what this recovery operation may actually look like. So now we've got the cargo bay doors opened up. We've got the Jeep. We've got the retrieval operation going on. So again, we, it appears that we've got the physical hardware. We've got these crash retrievals, many of these intact within government facilities. Okay, next one, Pentagon, 1952. This has to do with an office worker who somehow went to the bottom basement vault at the Pentagon. They absolutely do have a vault at the Pentagon. Somehow she stumbled through a doorway into an off-limits room. And this is page 152, case one. So she gets into this room. She kind of bumps through the doorway here. She's looking around and it's, it's dark, it's dingy, it's kind of musty, it's very poorly lit and there's some old dusty boxes around. And she kind of moves off and makes a turn to the right. And what does she see? She sees a quote unquote pickled alien in a jar, her exact words. So let's go to the drawing here. She sees this pickled alien in a jar. Within 10 seconds, she, she feels this grasp on her arm. And it was a military MP telling her to get out of there immediately. You've got to leave immediately. So. She was forced to leave. She was told to sign papers, never to discuss what she saw. But And when Leonard reached her uh, years later, she did not want to talk about this incident. So, again, this is uh, at the Pentagon underground vault facility. So let's go to a color illustration. What could this look like? This is by Joseph. It, it may have looked something like this, something similar to what we've seen here. And we keep hearing these reports about these pickled aliens in this suspended animation liquid uh, in these underground facilities. Next one, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1953. I really like this one. Page 15, 
abstract ape, and this has to do with a warrant officer. He was at the right place at the right time when a four-engine cargo DC-7 taxied onto Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This is at night. The hangar doors open up, and this DC-7 taxis in. They, they immediately shut the hangar doors, and I want to take you inside now. Here you, I, now, I don't know which hangar it was, but this is the complex, the main complex uh, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And so you can imagine this DC-7 taxiing in here, and now we're, we're looking inside the hangar. The hangar doors are closed, and this shows you very similar to what this scene may have looked like. This is kind of a DC-7, and there is a aft cargo bay. Now, just picture this scene being inside the hangar on the port left side of the craft itself, there's a cargo bay door that opened up and then there was a forklift that removed five wooden crates. The forklift driver, he lowered the crates and that's when this warrant officer who was at the right place at the right time inside this hangar, he looked over and looked inside these crates. What did he see? Let's take a look. He saw what he would appear to be about three and a half to four foot tall, quote unquote, humanoid looking beings. They were wearing a one piece tight fitting flight suit. They had oversized head, oversized eyes, slit for a mouth, minute nose, and one he said was female. He got close enough to identify that one of them was female. He also said that these beings were suspended off the bottom of the wooden crates by a kind of a white fabric material that protected them from the dry ice below. This is 1953, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base by my good friend, Rudy Gardea. Now, let's, let's bring this to color. Let's go to a color illustration and really take you to the scene. I want to bring you there like you're actually inside. And here is the full final full color running by Joseph Wright. We can see that they have completed the retrieval operation. The, the three wooden lids are lifted off from the crates. And this warrant officer is kind of about, he's a little bit about 10 feet away. He's kind of peering over and looking inside. And you can see a little bit of this mist coming up from the dry ice below. But again, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1953. It appears, ladies and gentlemen, that they've got the hardware, they've got the bodies. This is the top view looking down from the perspective that this warrant officer may have seen. And there were three of them there. Okay, next one. 1955, across the Texas-Mexican border, south of Del Rio. Now, the source is The Other Roswell by Noe Torres and my good friend Ruben, who is the director of the San Jose MUFON chapter. And what's actually taking place here is, and I'm going to set the scene here, if you look at the top of this map, you've got Del Rio. And there were four F-86 Sabre jets heading westbound and they were escorting three B-47s, all heading westbound. All of a sudden, this dish-shaped craft comes screaming by, right by their flight path, and this one dish-shaped craft is sparking, letting off all these sparks, and it crashes, if you look at Del Rio, Texas, and you go straight south, you will see the Rio Grande River. Just south of the Rio Grande River is where this crash took place. So this is a very accurate map of where this crash took place. So one of these F-86 Sabre jets, he pulled away from the other group. He did a real quick flyby. I'll go back one. You can see here he's doing a, a real quick flyby, and it's just south of the Rio Grande River. He lands the F-86 at a private airport. 
<laughs> uh, he, he lands, goes to a private airport, he gets inside a two-seat tail-dragger high-wing Aranka and flies back to the scene of the crash retrieval. What does he see when he gets there? This is the scene. So this craft was 25 feet in diameter, it was about five feet tall. The Mexican soldiers were there before the military. The U.S. government got involved. The Mexican army was there before, and they were using our vehicles. A couple of different jeeps were there. They had a six-by-troop transport. The military MPs were surrounding the craft. Over on the right foreground, you can see the Aranka. Now, that was our pilot. He had a friend who came along. And it's interesting to note that the dome on this craft actually popped off when it kind of augered in and then it had kind of a dragging section on the ground. That's what you see here. Now, according to Ruben, he said that as the, the day kind of went on, it got a little bit colder, and the Mexican military were taking blankets, and they were putting this on the craft, warming the blankets, and then putting them on their bodies to keep themselves warm. I always thought that that was interesting. And according to the report within the book, at least one body was recovered. Okay, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1955, the Foreign Materials Division. This is page 17, abstract 7 by Leonard Stringfield. This has to do with a secretary who worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And what she was involved in, and this is a very major warehouse within the base, she was involved in cataloging this is directly from the report, cataloging over a thousand components that came from a UFO crash retrieval. Can you imagine? A thousand components came in uh, after they were photographed, they were bagged and tagged, and it was her job to catalog this. So you can just picture this ending scene at Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they've got all these components from this UFO crash retrieval stacked up on crates and pallets. This might have been what it looked like. This is Warehouse Operations Building 258, where they've got all this storage material. So what I want to do now is I want to take you inside the facility, showing you uh, this woman at the typewriter. She also mentioned that there was a dolly that rolled by with two what looked like alien beings. They were about three and a half to four feet across. That's how tall they were. And then we'll take you inside here. This is the interior now of this facility. Over on the background, you can see a gentleman with a camera pointing down to a desk, and he's photographing this debris. You can see the woman in the foreground. She's starting all the cataloging operation, doing the tagging. And then off to the left and the right, Rudy has drawn this shelving, and you can see all of these components, all of these strange UFO crash retrieval uh, components. And in the back wall, we've got drawers that can pull out with even more. So again, when the United States government gets up there and they have these congressional hearings and they state that we don't have any physical evidence, not according to this woman, they did. She was involved. She cataloged it. In fact, just before she died, she let all this out and she said, quote, Uncle Sam can't do anything to me once I'm in my grave. So we have to give her credit for coming forward. Next one. This is Source, retired Air Force pilot, sometime in the late 1950s, and the interview was conducted by Ed Kamarek, Jr., and he saw a five to six minute clip, 
And what's depicted in this movie clip is about a 60-foot diameter dish-shaped craft that had a 10-foot gash on one side. And it's, it appears that whatever the propulsion system was within the interior section of the craft itself, it ripped right through this upper dome. And that's what you see on the upper left-hand indented in large view here, which is the core or perhaps the propulsion system or engine on this craft itself. Now, he also said that in this film, the interior of the craft was shown, and there were control panels, there were lettering, there were symbols, there were star charts inside, and there were three bodies recovered that were five feet tall. And this is all from a retired Air Force pilot sometime in the late 1950s where he saw this five to six minute movie film clip. Next one, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1962, April. This was a transient pilot who was in charge of about four other pilots, and it was his job to keep these pilots in shape. So they're running down these rows of hangars. They're looking for this portable racquetball court, and so they, they kind of burst through this door, and when they get inside, they see this 15-foot diameter dish-shaped craft that he said looked just like a track and field discus. It was being supported on these engine test stands. It had kind of a rope around it, and then these MPs at parade rest with rifles were guarding this craft. And one of these MPs talked to the transient pilot and said, you know what, you're not supposed to be here, are you? And he said, you know what, you're right. So they left. When that transient pilot got back to his base, his original base of operations, his commanding officer came to me, came to him and said, uh, what did you see at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? And this pilot told him, quote, unquote, I didn't see anything. And this general said, good answer, and it was left at that. So again, April 1962, they have the hardware. Next one, reference number 53. This is from the dictation notes. A Navy captain encountered a 30-foot diameter dish-shaped craft flying saucer at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The source was PJ, a captain in the Navy and a pilot for Braniff Airlines, date 1963. So he had seen a dish-shaped craft at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So it keeps on coming up, um, case after case after case, witness after witness, talking about dish-shaped craft, flying saucers, being held inside these facilities, hangars, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Next one, December 1963, Cherry Point, North Carolina, crash retrievals, page 152, case two. So. This is a really good case because I put so much effort into it here. Again, December 1963, this has to do with a Marine who was stationed at Marine Corps Air Station, Cherry Point, North Carolina. And in the middle of the night, this MP, this Marine, he's called out of a dead sleep. And he's told to board a plane with blacked out windows. And they fly about three hours from Cherry Point, North Carolina to a military installation, which he never revealed to Leonard Stringfield. So Leonard Stringfield never could deduce where this actually was. But it was three hours by plane from Cherry Point, North Carolina. And I've got the base map here, which shows you where this actually is, this location, the uh, Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point. And so they fly into this facility they open up these quote-unquote hangar doors, and what does he see inside? He sees this fat hamburger-shaped UFO 
40 feet in diameter, 15 feet tall. It has a highly polished exterior. There are about nine elliptically shaped opaque windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft. Uh, there was a one inch lip between the outer portion of the craft or the skin of the craft and the outer portion of these opaque windows that you could actually feel. He said that it, it absolutely had this one inch lip. On the bottom of the craft, there was an entry hatchway that he says was so fully integrated into the bottom of the craft, you could not put a razor blade inside. That's how fully integrated that this entryway hatch is. Now, he also mentioned that there, they were using three elements to try to breach the hull of this craft. And you can see these red dots that I've drawn on the seam of this entryway hatch and just below one of these opaque windows. What they were trying to do is use three ways to breach the hull of the craft. And one of the ways was using this diamond tip drill bit. This is the same thing they used in the 1946 case that we previously examined at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So now we've got two cases of the United States government trying to breach the hull of these craft using diamond tip drill bits. Okay, so here's the, a little bit more uh, refined drawing. This is by Joseph Rape. You can see here this polished exterior. Uh, the craft contained is smoke, smoky glass windows. Attempt to enter by three different uh, ways to try to get inside. And we'll talk about how they try to get in. Uh, 3D color graphics done by my very good friend, Joseph Wraith. He's got to get the credit for the work he did here. Number one, this is the first way they tried to get inside. Number one was a diamond tip drill. Number two, an acetylene cutting torch. Number three, a laser. They tried all three and they did not get inside. They were unsuccessful. So let's break it down here. This is the original sketch by the U.S. Marine. So it's kind of a, a world exclusive here. This is the original sketch. If you look in the upper right and left-hand corners here, you can see these lights shining down. He absolutely mentioned, this is the Marine here, he mentioned that inside this facility, the craft was propped up by aircraft scaffolding. They built a catwalk around this thing so you could walk around it. And this thing was being excruciatingly well lit. No shadows, very well lit. And then on the bottom, it was being supported by these bumpers or pads. So he mentioned that as well. And you can see this personnel walking around the craft. This is an original sketch by the Marine himself. Here's a drawing by Michael Johnson, a little bit more refined. Uh, you can see this one inch lip. If you look in the extreme left-hand side of the craft, you can see this one inch lip from the outer exterior of the craft to the outer exterior of the indented window section. And again, you can see the scaffolding. They propped up the whole thing by scaffolding and you could walk under this craft. So these white lab coat technicians could walk around it, they could walk below it, they could see it at eye level. Very good optics for this craft. Okay, here's my final AutoCAD drawing that shows you what this may have looked like. And I've done a detailed and large view showing you this one inch lip here. So let's uh, run by these bullet item points here. Craft was seen at an undisclosed military location three hours by plane from Cherry Point, North Carolina. Number two, entire craft was surrounded by what looked like standard military aircraft scaffolding. A white circle was taped to the floor which outlined the prohibited area for Air Force generals. Between three to four U.S. Marines guarded the craft while it was temporarily in the hangar. 
Next one. The windows of the craft were indented toward the interior, forming a one-inch lip. See detailed view. The primary witness secretly took a photograph of the saucer, which was later lost in a flood. And we'll get to that. Last one here. A team of between 20 to 50 engineers examined the craft, but were unable to gain access to the interior. Wow. If we could retrofit our fighter jet with these skins from these craft, they would be impervious to any type of missile or ground attack fire. Okay, here is the full color rendering by Joseph Ray, who did a fantastic job showing everybody what this craft looked like on the scaffolding. And you could just imagine being at this facility and walking around this craft. Uh, preliminary drawing done by uh, Jose Sanchez, good friend of mine. Here you see them trying to breach the hole with this diamond tip drill bit, no chance. It actually broke these bits and wore them down, so there was no getting inside. Illustration by John McNeil. This was the first pass that we did, and you can see on the floor this perimeter tape that they put on the floor, and his job was to guard this craft for two weeks at this facility, and he was commanded to shoot to kill anyone who tried to breach that circle on the floor. Oh, all right, and then we should also mention that after they tried the acetylene torch, which was useless, they ended up bringing an 18-wheeler tractor-trailer little boy with this huge power-generating device on it, and there was these thick-gauge cables or power cords that led from the generator to a laser device. And so they were using a laser on the side hole of this craft. had no effect other than the fact that it heated up the material. That's it. There was no hole breach. So what I want to do is I want to walk you inside this facility and give you a full color rendering of what it may have looked like being inside the facility. Again, this is done by Joseph Ray. So we'll, we're continuing to walk inside. We'll get a little bit closer here. Now you can see the MPs guarding. You've got this well-lit section. This is exactly what the Marine described. This is about a little over five feet off the floor. You can see the guardrail. This is the catwalk they built so that you can walk around this craft. Here we're doing a little bit more of an enlarged view. Now you can see some of these uh, uh, mysterious men monitoring the situation here. They apparently have access. Uh, looking inside here, now you can get the very first view of this one-inch lip, and you can see this polished or slightly brushed aluminum exterior of the craft. Here's a kind of a top view, isometric view, looking down. A very good view now of this perimeter circle inside this facility. So again, it is this Marine who's coming to us with this information, and it's his word against the United States government. He was there. He had the security clearance to be there at the right place at the right time. Again, view looking down here, just showing you a little bit of a different perspective. It must have been absolutely incredible. Now, the last day that he was there, he said that they were hoisting this day-shaped craft up onto an 18-wheeler tractor trailer. They were putting a tarp on it with chains on top and then moving it to the next location. So you can see one of the ways that, that they keep this under wraps is they move these things from location to location and no one person stays within this for any length of time. So they compartmentalize these UFO crash retrievals and that's one of the ways that they've been able to keep all this secret for all these years. Okay, here we see they're building a cradle around this and they're beginning the tarping operation. They're covering up the craft with the tarp now. 
we're fully tarped, we're fully ready to leave. We've even got the pads in here supporting the bottom of the craft. And now we're kind of on our way out now and we're leaving this facility for another facility. Who knows where they brought it from there? Could be Wright-Patterson Air Force Base because it appears that all roads lead to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. We're on our way out now and here we're outside the facility moving to the next location. Here was the original drawing by Rudy showing you the retrieval operation, so credit must go to Rudy for this drawing here. Now, getting back to the laser, it's interesting because when they turned the laser on this craft, it reflected, bounced off the surface of the craft and damaged the ceiling tile. And that's just incredible because this is something that was highlighted in a very interesting movie. And you can see here, here's the damage to the ceiling tile that was done by this laser operation. Again, this is 1963, literally days after Kennedy was assassinated, November 22nd, 1963. So if this was already there for, let's say, a month maximum, it is conceivable that President Kennedy may have seen this before he was assassinated. We just want to throw that out there. It's a possibility. Okay, here is the original sketch showing you the reflection and then the damage to the ceiling tile. You've got the catwalk, and you've got this supporting uh, scaffolding structure. So, if you look at this terrible Hangar 18 movie that came out in 1980, it's a B movie. I, I don't even recommend it, but if you want to see something interesting, because it, it appears that Hollywood may be a belated designer leak for what's actually going on within the military-industrial complex, within these retrieval operations. There are three similarities to what the Marine described compared to what are secretly embedded within this movie. Number one, both talk about white lab coat technicians, so that checks out. Number two, there are scaffolding both in the report from the Marine and in this movie. And number three, there's a quote-unquote incident with a laser. This checks out. So was this movie based on something that actually happened? We have to entertain that possibility. He also mentioned that these lab coat technicians had color-coded badges, okay? So if you had a green badge, you could go here, but not here. If you had a yellow badge, you could go here. If you had a red badge, you had access to this location. So it depended upon where you could go, and that coincided with your badge color. So he absolutely mentioned that these white lab coat technicians, they had color-coded ID badges. Now. There was one time, and his job was to frisk people going into the facility. There was one time where he wasn't frisked, and he got in there one time alone. He had a small Minox camera, and he took a photograph of this craft on the scaffolding. And basically he said, quote, someday I will tell this story, and by God, people are going to believe. But unfortunately, that photograph was lost in a flood during 1983. So this is another one of these cases where... We got so close to the evidence. We got so close to the evidence, but it was always two steps ahead of us. So what would this photograph look like if we could see it today? And this is Joseph Ray's uh, simulation of what it may look like. A little bit blurred, a little grainy, but this would have been the evidence we would need to push these UFO crash retrieval cases forward. Now, from the studies that I've been able to put together around the dates, there was a Secretary of the Navy, according to this Marine, who was just about to breach 
that white circle on the floor, he was almost shot by this Marine. And if you track the dates, it is this gentleman right here, Paul Nitz. He was the undersecretary, uh, secretary of the Navy between 1963 to June 30th, 1967. He would have been the secretary of the Navy that was stopped by this Marine. He would know about this particular case. That brings us to four-star Major General Melvin F. McNichol. He was base commander Tinker Air Force Base. And uh, I've got his obituary here. Ex-Tinker Commander Melvin McNichol, McNichol dies. This is the Daily Oklahoma, July 11, 1986. So why am I bringing up this gentleman, this General McNichol? Why am I bringing him up? Because he was very good friends with another interesting person that ties into all of these UFO crash retrievals. Her name is Charlotte Mann. She was intimately involved in the crash retrieval of something that came down in Cape Girardeau, April 1941. Her grandfather was involved. And these two people, Charlotte Mann and Melvin McNichol, were friends and they had a mutual interest in UFOs. And so one day, the subject of UFOs came up and uh, she turned to the general and said, General, you know, you really haven't told me anything after all these years about UFOs. I mean, you're this general. Is there something you can tell me? And so this general turns around and says, Charlotte, if you ever repeat what I'm about to tell you, I'll deny it. It could ruin my career. And so he proceeded to tell her, and this is the takeaway here, number one, he saw a UFO which was located in the West. Number two, he walked around a UFO on a catwalk, which was propped up by scaffolding. Number three, bodies were recovered and one was still alive. This is identical to what the Marine had talked about in 1963, what he was guarding. He said that he flew from Cherry Point, North Carolina, three hours by plane. That would put you within range of the West, so that checks out. Number two, this general talks about how he walked around this craft on a catwalk. This is exactly what the Marine talked about. He said that they built scaffolding and a catwalk around the craft that he was guarding. Number three, this general said that bodies were recovered and one was still alive. Overhearing through cooler water talk, this Marine heard these lab coat technicians talking about bodies recovered and one was still alive. So we've got independent confirmation from two separate sources that I'm sure don't know each other, talking about could have been the exact same crap. All right, so bottom line is, could the public handle the truth regarding the UFO disclosure? This is according to the Marine. This is his final assessment. There is a certain amount of people who, if the thing was on display down the street, would still rather stay home and watch football. This is a statement by U.S. Marine, August 22, 1986. So if you look at a cross-section of society, there would be a certain group of individuals who would be excited, who would be happy, who would be yelling from the streets, streets and rooftops about this UFO disclosure. We finally have the evidence. But then there'd be another group that would be thinking, you know what, you're interrupting my football game or you're interrupting my I Love Lucy reruns, and they wouldn't care. They don't have a curious bone in their body. That's the cross-section of society that we're dealing with here. So it, it appears that we are ready. We're ready to handle this, and uh, some people, they wouldn't even care. So we can have the evidence come forward. So I'm asking the question, 
what did President Kennedy know about UFOs? When did he know it? And who did he tell? Because theoretically, if this took place in December 1963, and it was there for a month, that would put it early November 1963. Kennedy was still alive at that time. He could have actually seen this. It is possible. All right, we'll move on to the next one here. This is Fort Riley, Kansas, December 10th, 1964. The source is a private first class. Retrievals, page 24, abstract 20. That's the source for this material. I'm going to take you to the scene now. This is map of Camp Foresight, which indicates the general area where the UFO came down. So picture this private first class. He is ordered to go on a six-by-troop transport with other military personnel. They drive into this clearing area. They're told to walk another half mile into this wooded area, and then there's another clearing area where they see something very interesting, and it's this craft right here. This is my original drawing. It's a fat hamburger-shaped craft, about 40 feet across in diameter, about 10 feet, 18 inches, uh, 18 feet tall. It has a very interesting 10 inch by 10 inch protracting or protruding box-like structures wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft itself. There is a fin attached to the back of it and then a protrusion at the back of this fin section. And so here was my first SOLIDWORKS rendering of what the craft looks like. And then this is Ruby's drawing. Again, this is at night. And he said, this is the private first class now, that there was a Huey UH-1 hovering above the scene, shining a spotlight down on this craft. And there were men with Geiger counters kind of walking around this craft, testing it for any type of radiation. Uh, later, the craft was put on an M123 tank transporter uh, th that was used in the recovery operation, and they also had these team members with these biological chemical protective suits and masks. They were seen, and this is confirmed by two other eyewitnesses, so I wouldn't even bring up this case if it wasn't for the fact that there were two separate independent sources that confirmed this 1964 sighting. Next one, U.S. Air Force Museum, Dayton, Ohio, 1965. This is page 153, case 3. This particular case is so crazy, it's so outlandish, it's so unbelievable, I debated even including it within this presentation, but I think it's important we do because it's been documented. We've got at least some paperwork to back it up. So the sighting scene here is a couple is at the Air Force Museum back in 1965, and they go up to the section where they have the V-2 rocket display. So they're looking at this V-2. Now the wife stays at the display. For some reason, the husband departs. He's wandering around the museum. He kind of goes down this corridor. He goes through these doorways that are marked uh, no entry. He goes through these doors. And what does he see when he gets there? And I'm taking you here to the V-2 rocket display. So you can just imagine that the wife is over here looking at the V-2. The husband's already took off. He's going down this corridor. He eventually goes through these double doors and he sees this. He sees this three and a half to four foot tall, kind of a gray alien looking being. He's wearing a one piece tight fitting mercury shiny silver flight suit. He has a helmet on. He's pointing his index finger toward this man. And then all of a sudden, within 30 seconds, these buzzers go off, these lights go off, these warning signals go off, 
and all these military MPs start ushering all of the uh, members of the public out of the museum. This is back in 1965. So is this evidence for an underground facility that is attached to the Air Force Museum? We're just going to throw it out there because we've always heard these rumors that there's these underground vaults and underground tunnels and caverns connected to the Air Force Museum and under Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Okay, this is 1969, late 1960s. This is at Fort Hood, and then within Fort Hood in Texas, this is actually in Texas, there is something called Gray Army Airfield where a Cessna 172 pilot made an emergency landing and this is at Gray Army Airfield, and then immediately there was a jeep that pulled off, and there were MPs pointing pistols at this uh, pilot. While all this is going on, these huge bypass doors open up, talking about huge, 200 feet by 300 feet, and inside is the CH-47 helicopters, we've got different dish-shaped craft, we've got the Temple, Oklahoma craft, we could even possibly see an original prototype of the December 29, 1980 Huffman, Texas, Cash Landrum incident, a computer, credit computer type section. This is late 1969 time frame. And uh, that's what he actually saw there. And we'll, we'll consider a 1966 case. This was Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1966. This was an electrical uh, civil service electrician. This is page 17, abstract number 13. He said that when he came home, he showed his son a picture that he pulled out from his breast uh, trench coat pocket, and it depicted a lab coat technician and a military officer holding up a dead alien corpse in a southwest environment sometime in the early 1950s. He showed this to his son, and then later that day, the next day, they discovered that this photograph was missing and he was fired from his job. And this is the slide that should have been up forward here. But again, this we're going back to the 1969 Cessna 172 pilot. This is page 191. Here is Robert Gray Army Airfield. Shows you what this looks like. And then I asked the question, is there a vast top secret underground facility located at Gray Army Airfield? That's the question we're going to ask. And we've got multiple reports of these twin rotor CH-47 helicopters escorting UFOs from Fort Hood. So is there an underground facility there? It looks like that's the case. Next one, Great Lakes Naval Training Center. This is 1973. This is a gunnery school instructor who guarded a Quonset-style building, page 89, case A7. So let me set this up. This uh, gunnery school instructor, he is told to deliver some important papers inside a Quonset-style hut. He is met with these very strong CBs, muscular CBs. They bring him down and escort him down a corridor. They make a left-hand turn down a longer corridor, and it's opened up into this large facility where they see something inside, which is this craft. It's a teardrop-shaped craft. 35 feet long, 12 feet high. It has a ridge going along what I believe the top surface all the way back to the uh, trailing edge of the craft. It had a, a blue coronal discharge along the leading edge of the craft. 
and it was being propped up off the floor on a two-foot-tall wooden pedestal. This is my full-color 3D rendering of what I think it might have looked like. Again, this is 73 time frame, and this is Rudy's drawing of what the craft looked like. And you can see this craft being suspended off the floor by this two-foot-tall wooden pedestal. So, and if you look very closely, you can see this ridge line that started at the blunt edge and tapered all the way back to the point edge at the back end of the craft itself. So, according to this report from this gunnery instructor, that craft was shot down by a guided missile destroyer. That's how it was shot down. Later, none other than Howard Hughes' Glomar Explorer enters the scene here. This is this massive ship, and we've got these gantry cranes here. Uh, here is Honolulu Advertiser, August 19, 1974. Crew stays long. Mystery ship shifts uh, anchorage. We'll move forward here. And that brings very strong CVs, muscular CVs. They bring him down and escort him down a corridor. They make a left-hand turn down a longer corridor, and it's opened up into this large facility where they see something inside, which is this craft. It's a teardrop-shaped craft, 35 feet long, 12 feet high. It has a ridge going along what I believe the top surface all the way back to the uh, trailing edge of the craft. It had a, a blue coronal discharge along the leading edge of the craft, and it was being propped up off the floor on a two-foot-tall wooden pedestal. This is my full-color 3D rendering of what I think it might have looked like. Again, this is 73 time frame, and this is Rudy's drawing of what the craft looked like, and you can see this craft being suspended off the floor by this two-foot-tall wooden pedestal. So, and if you look very closely, you can see this ridge line that started at the blunt edge and tapered all the way back to the point edge at the back end of the craft itself. So, according to this report, from this gunnery instructor, that craft was shot down by a guided missile destroyer. That's how it was shot down. Later, none other than Howard Hughes's Glomar Explorer enters the scene here. This is this massive ship, and you've got these gantry cranes here. Uh, here is Honolulu Advertiser, August 19, 1974. Crew stays long. Mystery ship shifts uh, anchorage. We'll move forward here. And that brings us to a very interesting book called A Matter of Risk, the incredible inside story of the CIA Hughes Glomar Explorer mission to raise a Russian submarine. During 1973 to 1974, a Russian submarine was recovered from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. However, that's not all that was recovered. According to the report from Leonard Springfield, this Clementine device that was used to recover a Russian submarine was also used to recover that UFO. So how many other ones do they have? And was this craft used, this claw device, was it used to recover more than just one UFO? How CIA divers retrieved Russian secret, San Francisco Examiner, March 19, 1975. So it appears this craft was used to retrieve more than just a Russian submarine. Next one, Norton Air Force Base, 1973. Sources, an Air Force photographer, page 160, case 14. Okay, so set the scene. The Air Force photographer is at Hawaii. That's where he's stationed. 
His security clearance is upgraded. He's flown to Norton Air Force Base where he joins another Air Force photographer. They're put inside this very nice limousine-like car. The car drives one hour from Norton Air Force Base location and stops, completely stops. And then all of a sudden, the floor drops out and this entire car is dropped down into an underground location one hour from Norton Air Force Base. So now this car is just parked at this underground facility. And these two photographers get out and uh, they're told to disrobe nude. They get dressed up in smocks, kind of these white lab coat uh, hazard suits with kind of a transparent forward section. They're led into an underground facility where they see a large crane and suspended by this netting is this 30-foot diameter dish-shaped craft. Now, I'm going to mention this twice. He said the craft was 30 feet in diameter. These two photographers get on a cherry picker. They're led inside the entry hatch. You can see that here by Ruby's drawing. They get inside, and the first thing this photographer says is, quote, I could have thrown a football as hard as I could and not hit the other side. That's what he said. Now, this thing's only 30 feet in diameter but yet he said he could throw a football as hard as he could and not hit the other side. Something was going on on the interior of this craft. A, a, a space-time continuum, a warp, something. Some visible hologram or something that was going on inside the craft, giving him the impression that this was much larger, something cavernous. Now, inside his job was to photograph the interior components the buttons, the switches, the dials, the levers, these display screens. Later, they were brought to another room where they were conducting an autopsy on three alien corpses, so he photographed that as well. So, again, they've got the evidence. <coughs> now, that brings us to the point where these tube shuttle systems, we've heard about these underground high-speed tube shuttle systems, which may actually be a reality here. This is Los Angeles Times, June 11, 1972. L.A. to New York in half an hour. 10,000 mile an hour tunnel train plane developed. So again, 1972. If we're reading about this in 1972, it's perhaps already a done deal. 10 years, 20 years prior, they already had the technology and worked it out. Could already be fielded. Here you can see these tubes going through here. These would be very high speed, uh, crisscrossing the nation from the East Coast to the West Coast. It's already a done deal. Next one, McClellan Air Force Base, California, 1973, UFO crash retrieval. Page 153, case three. Very interesting case. And this is at Sacramento. And this has to do with test pilot Ellison Onizuka, who is very familiar to, I think, all of us here. And what he claims is that he was present at a briefing room at this airbase with about 12 other pilots, and they're brought into this briefing room. The lights go down, and then there's a general in the back room who's kind of standing in the back of a projector. He turns on the projector, and on this forward wall is this cryptic scene of two alien bodies on slabs and then this autopsy being performed. And this pilot was remarked, he, he kept saying, oh my God, he, he could not believe this. And so he actually saw this. Now, after about five minutes, this black and white film stopped, the lights came back on, and there was absolutely no debrief whatsoever. Absolutely no debrief at all. 
Uh, and this is Ellison Onizuka. Now, why does this sound familiar? Because this was an astronaut in the Challenger. Now, let's go to Open Minds article here. This is August 19, 2014. Witness says that top-secret UFO library existed at McClellan Air Force Base. David Armstrong claims his aunt used to work for a top-secret UFO records library in McClellan Air Force Base. In his 20s, Armstrong went to visit her, and knowing he had an interest in the subject, Armstrong says his aunt let him take a look at the files. In this video, Armstrong recounts what he claims to have seen in those files, including images of extraterrestrial spacecraft and aliens. So here's a second data point that there was a repository where there were films, probably still in motion pictures, stored at McClellan Air Force Base. Now, Leonard Springfield heard about this from a mutual friend, and Ellison Unizuka was actually contacted and Leonard Springfield wanted to actually interview the astronaut, but unfortunately, two weeks prior to the interview, Ellison Onizuka was lost in the Challenger accident January 28, 1986, so Leonard never got a chance to interview him. Okay, next one. Reference number 39. According to Beth Schilling, an Air Force officer told her details regarding a UFO that crashed in Ohio area during the 1973 or 1974 time frame. The source indicated that three bodies were recovered, which were brought back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The source also indicated that one of the aliens was still alive and lived for an additional week after the retrieval operation. Source Air Force officer via Bet Schilling, date 1973 or 1974. So this is another data point where they've got the evidence. Okay, next one, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1974. It's the same publication that we showed earlier, which is the source material for this. Now, this was a new hire who was hired to work as an office worker at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and she was at a dinner engagement. Coincidentally, her boss, her new boss, was also at this dinner engagement. Somehow, the top of the UFOs came up, and this man turns to his new hire and says, you want to see the evidence? And she turned to him and said, you mean now? And he said, yes, now. So he took her to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He had the right security clearance to get inside a building, which had a very interesting room with a key card entryway. He had the correct card device that allowed him to get inside. That brought them to another room. He put another key card into there, and that brought them into this morgue facility where he opened up this drawer and there was about a three and a half to four foot tall, quote unquote, alien looking being that had an oversized head and oversized eyes. She got to see the physical evidence back in 1974. Okay, next one. The Koyame incident. Noe Torres and my good friend Ruben. This is Koyame, Mexico, August 25th, 1974. Now this has to do with a Cessna 172 pilot that was flying southbound. A very interesting dish-shaped craft was trackling over 2,000 miles an hour northbound, and you can kind of see what's happening here. There was a mid-air collision, and both craft crashed near Koyame, Mexico, August 25, 1974. Now, this is a little bit hard to see here, but I've got a map of where this took place here. An unknown object was being tracked going 2,530 miles an hour 
at an altitude of 75,000 feet heading north toward Texas. It dropped down to an altitude of where the 172 was, and that's where the mid-air collision actually took place. Now, who was watching this? Who was monitoring this? Well, the Mexican soldiers got to the location first before the United States military got there. The National Security Agency was tracking the radio tra traffic, and they probably had a satellite over the facility looking down on all this. Thank you. They had a reconnaissance flight that confirmed this. And so you can see this scene. There's this military convoy of Mexican soldiers who pick up this craft. They put in an 18-wheeler tractor-trailer little boy. They've got kind of a Jeep up front. There's a 6 by military troop convoy leaving the retrieval operation, and then something very strange happened. Very odd happened. The entire convoy stopped, completely stopped. And then when our military got to the scene, what they found were the Mexican soldiers slumped over dead on their vehicles. Some were on the ground laid completely dead. Something happened to these soldiers, some biological agent or something else. And we sent in three Bell UH-1 Hueys and one CH-53C stallion for the retrieval operation. So you can see how the United States government snatches these craft from under the nose of the other governments. We'll do anything to retrieve these craft. So here is Rudy's drawing of the retrieval operation. On the foreground here on the bottom, you can see the Mexican soldiers dead on the ground and then slumped over on the steering wheel column. In the background, you can see the three UH-1 helicopters and then this massive sea stallion retrieving the craft itself, flying to another location within the United States government. So again, we have got the hardware. Next one, Fort Dix, McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey. This is January 18th, 1971. Crash retrievals, page 131, so that you can investigate this on your own. Now, the scene is at night, and uh, George Filer was there the morning after this actually happened, so he kind of plays a role in this as well. Now, the night before, there were a number of UFOs seen over the Fort Dix part of the base. And there was a military MP who was doing kind of a perimeter run around the security facility. Here you can see the location of where this actually took place. Something emerged from the darkness. And if you look at here, it says approximate area of incident with Fort Dix MP. That's where this MP got out of the squad car. He pulled out a 45 and he shot something that was an alien being that had kind of this very interesting torso and head. Whatever this being was, was still on the Fort Dix side of the base. He climbed over the fence and died on the McGuire deserted runway. That's where he passed away. Here's the top view looking down of the approximate location where this took place. So what happened next? Here in the foreground body, bottom, you can see the, the shooting uh, scene here. This being is now climbing over and he dies on the other side. They actually built a wooden crate for this body. They put this wooden crate into a metal container and then a C-141 Starlifter from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base retrieved the crate with the metal container and flew it back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Very interesting case. Here's the C-141 Starlifter that flew the metal container containing the body back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So, big question here. 
what do these beings look like? According to the pathologist that Leonard Stringfield was able to interview, these beings are quote unquote three and a half to four and a half feet tall. They have two round almond sunken in eyes without pupils, heavy brow ridge, large hairless human by human standards, um, no earlobes, no definitive nose, small slit for a mouth, very thin neck, small torso wearing a metallic flexible garment, arms described as long and thin reaching down to the knees, hands have four fingers without thumbs, slight webbing, short and thin legs, no toes, skin color beige, tan, brown, tan, pinkish or gray. That's the description of these aliens according to the pathologists that are involved in the autopsy. So let's put all that information together. Everything that we heard from the pathologist, the human, the, the skull, the long gangly arms, the minute sort of squiggly looking body features. Let's put all that together and give you the best available sketch that's ever been done. And this is the pathologist here, alien autopsy performed at Walter Reed Hospital. The cadaver was described as being three and a half uh, feet in height with a large head, protruding brow, sunken eyes, which wrapped around to the side of the face, very long arms. Source pathologist at Cleveland Clinic, uh, Clinic via Stanley Tyco, 1952-1953. Now I'm going to hit you with the sketch here. Here is the best available sketch that we can put together. I'm willing to bet that if we could see these bodies today, they'd look very similar to this. You can see this heavy bony brow ridge, long arms, uh, webbed fingers, four fingers webbing between their uh, emaciated type body, oversized head, oversized eyes, slit for a mouth, minute nose. This is exactly what the witnesses are telling us. Okay, so that brings us to St. Peter's Basilica, the Vatican. What does the Vatican know about UFO crash retrievals. Do they have any evidence? Now, we've always known that the Vatican has books dating back hundreds of years. They've got a massive collection of the Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica. There is talk within Leonard Stringfield case retrievals in the book that we've been looking at here of a craft being recovered and stored at the Vatican. They've got at least one craft, and there's something called the quote-unquote white book, which basically highlights mankind's interaction with extraterrestrials over the past 2,000 years. It'd be great if we could see that. So what I want to take do for you is I want to take you inside the Vatican. I want to show you the secret archives within the Vatican. What would this look like? This is perhaps what it would actually look like. So here we've got the Pope. In the upper foreground here, we've got this dish-shaped craft, according to one eyewitness. Over on the left, we've got the Egyptian sarcophagus. We've got these bound volumes. Up on the upper left-hand corner, we've got these scrolls from the Library of Alexandria. If you look on the right-hand side, we've got an Olmec head. And then on the uh, bottom right-hand side, we've got Aztec, we've got Inca treasures. Uh, is this what they have? Is this the forgotten history that the Vatican has? Absolutely, they have more than they're letting on. And so the goal of this presentation is to do a deep dive into these crash retrieval cases that are being told to us by high-level military brass, these high-level Pentagon officials, astronauts, commercial pilots, people on retrieval teams, people who have first-hand knowledge 
of crash retrievals. It's time that we give these people a voice, make these cases come alive, and preserve an important part of our national history by the use of these illustrations. And I want to thank you for your attention.